you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to be in uh, mostly chapter 18, a few verses there this morning, and then uh, some in chapter 19 as well as we continue our unexpected sermon series, journeying through 1 Samuel together. How many of you have had this experience? You're having a perfectly wonderful day. Ideally, I can stop right there. And it's already, already giggles. Imagine you're having a perfectly wonderful day. You didn't do too much. It was relaxing, but that's part of what made it so great. You mostly hung around the house or the apartment, walked around in bare feet, took a walk outside in the sunshine, opened the windows and let the breeze flow in. You're just feeling the goodness of God in your life. Took some time to pray, took some time to uh, maybe read the Bible, maybe read uh, some other books that encourage you, and you are just having a fantastic day. Maybe you catch up on a TV show you've been watching, and, and you're just relaxed. You hang out and take a nap in the hammock or on the couch, and everything's going great. And sometime in the afternoon, you decide, well, I got some time to kill. I think I'll take a look at Facebook and connect with some of my friends or catch up with some of my friends. So you scroll through your Facebook feed, looking at a few cute pictures, skipping over videos and advertisements, and suddenly you start to see your friends and you start to realize some of your friends are having pretty great days too. In fact, some of them seem to be having maybe even a greater day than you. Well, one of them's on a cruise someplace, and they sent the pictures there. And another one's on a golf trip, and they've got pictures of the beautiful greens of the golf course. And another one is, uh, you know, playing catch with his son, and, and, and he sent up some pictures of how great it is to be a dad and just play catch with him. Another one is she's, she's doing crafts or baking or, you know, with, with her daughter. Maybe she's at her daughter's softball game and just, just having a great day. And, and you realize that they're having great days, and all of a sudden your great day just doesn't seem to seem as great. And you shut off Facebook and Suddenly, you can't even remember that good feeling you had a few minutes ago. You feel worse after catching up with your friends than you did before you actually took a look and opened up Facebook. And you can't describe what just happened, but you know something just happened. Something just changed. So if that's happened to you, let me tell you there is a word for it, and something did just happen in your life. It's called FOMO. Not a term I made up, I promise you. (laughs) FOMO, what just happened to you is the fear of missing out. This is a real thing. Marketers came up with it somewhere in the 1990s to try and market things and sell things better to people. And they realized that a lot of times people will buy things based on the fear of missing out. That they will make purchases based on the fear of missing out. And so what happened to you is the fear of missing out. In an article I read about FOMO, it says it's an age-old problem that is accelerated thanks to real-time digital updates. It says this, one guy, uh, Mark Smith, a social media expert, says this, 
Those who used to dine behind stone walls and had caviar for dinner now do so still, but they tweet about it, and it can be seen by those sitting down to dinner at Chipotle. And suddenly this fear of missing out creeps in, changes the way we think, changes the way we feel. One woman in the article said this. She says, uh, she, said I, I, she opened Facebook, and she said, I'm thinking, I'm 28, uh, and, and everyone's doing great. She said, uh, she's in New York advertising, Jenna Wortham. Wrote about a friend who works in advertising. She told her that she felt fine about her life until she opened Facebook. The friend said, then I'm thinking, I'm 28 with three roommates, and oh, it looks like they have a precious baby and a mortgage, and then I wanted to die. And I don't know, that's extreme, but I don't know that her comments are that foreign to many people and to many of us in this day and age. It's not unusual and it's not anything new. Humans have always had a problem with comparison. You can go back to the very earliest days of creation and look at Cain and Abel, first murder that takes place, and find out that comparison was at the root of it. This idea comparing ourselves to one another has always been and is always a problem. Thomas DeLong, professor at Harvard Business School, has noted the problem with what he's called a disturbing comparison obsession that afflicts us. Thomas DeLong, a Harvard Business School professor, says this. He says, a former student of mine who graduated 10 years ago and has a terrific job at a Fortune 500 company, still suffers from this comparison obsession. At least it seemed like a terrific job until she received her alumni newsletter and learned that a fellow alumnus who was in the same MBA class as her was named VP at a Fortune 100 company. From that moment on, she could barely hold a conversation without bemoaning her lack of VP and Fortune 100 company status. On more than one occasion, she told others she felt like a failure. More so than ever before, Thomas DeLong says, business executive, Wall Street analysts, lawyers, doctors, and other professionals are obsessed with comparing their own achievements against those of others. Over the last five years, I've interviewed hundreds, here's another one for you, of HNAPs. HNAPs are high need for achievement professionals, according to this guy. High need for achievement professionals, Thomas DeWong says, about this phenomenon and discovered that comparing has reached almost epidemic proportions. This is bad for individuals and bad for companies when you define success based on external rather than internal criteria you diminish your satisfaction and commitment. It's telling that in my 500 interviews, he said, of high need to achieve professionals over the past three years, more than 400 of them questioned their own success and brought up the name of at least one other peer who they felt had been more successful than they were. Many of these individuals are considered to be the best and the brightest, yet they're trapped by their comparing reflex. Happens all over the place. It happens in your everyday life with Facebook and and, and social media. It happens in the workplace. It happens in the home. I read an article recently in Thriving Family Magazine, uh, magazine put out by Focus on the Family, and the article was called The Rift Between Moms. And this was the picture, if you can make it out a little bit, for the article. I thought it was 
pretty telling as one mom looking through her window at the perfect family next door. And it happens everywhere, this comparing reflex. And Lisa Jo Baker in this article says this. She said, I knew a mom who lost all her baby weight quickly, who didn't have to drop her son off to daycare every morning, and who laughed with easy familiarity at motherhood when it seemed like a strange and scary land to me. We sat outside in the late afternoon sun before church one evening, and I watched her feed her boy zucchini and potatoes. And I watched him eat it while my toddler spit up everything I fed him. She, she said, as everyone used to, he's so tiny, how much does he weigh? I felt the shame of failing at one more element of this new gig. I quietly resented her and wanted to be her at the same time. Since then, my husband and I have added two more kids to our family, and I've realized I'm not the only mom who feels so inadequate. She says, I see oceans of insecurity all around me. This is the one thing we're all terrified of getting wrong, how to be someone's mother. It makes us quick to point fingers at another mom to keep score because we need to neutralize our own feelings of failure. The shortest cut is to cut her down to size. We are moms who are threatened by moms who work outside the home. We are moms who judge moms who work at stay-at-home parents in the home. We are moms who are annoyed by the mom who doesn't socialize with other moms but concentrates on her smartphone at the park. Or we assume that if her kid is difficult, then she must be a bad parent. We are the moms who have worked so hard to be defined by our degrees that we're offended by moms who are content without degrees. Yet the women we're so offended by bear our name. Mom, and they too change diapers, set curfews, engage in the grueling art of saying no. Our mommy measuring jealousy finds its mark against other perfect moms, and we competitively make comparisons between their lives and our own. Happens all over the place. Happens with moms, happens in the workplace, happens in church, happens to pastors, happens to business people, happens to everyone, that we're comparing ourselves to the world around us. But what I want to speak to this morning is this unexpected jealousy that occurs in 1 Samuel, because what I believe is true, that if you and I don't get a handle on this in our lives, it can be deadly to our spirituality. This morning, I want to talk to you about something that is always completely unhelpful, something that is never any fun for anyone, something that nearly everyone sees except the person who is caught up in it, something that can cause a well-meaning, normally kind person to do things they would never dream of doing, and this thing's called envy. If we were to stop right now and go around this room and ask you to confess your sins, I'm not going to do it, but my guess is that a lot of things would come up, but envy wouldn't come up too much. One, because no one wants to admit that they're envious of someone else. Two, because it's one of those things that the person who suffers from it is almost always the last to know. Envy. That's definitely the case with the man in the passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning. Saul, the king of Israel, is caught up in envy. 
And this morning as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 18, what I want us to look at are three things. What are the results of envy? What is the root of envy? And what is to be our response to envy in our lives and in our world? The results, the root and our response. The passage is 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19 is a story, but I'm going to read from chapter 18. I'm going to start in verse 5. I know that starts in 6, but I'm going to start in verse 5 and read through verse 9. This is coming right on the heels of 1 Samuel 17 when shepherd boy David has achieved a great victory against the giant Goliath. All of Israel, including King Saul, were afraid to go out and battle the giant. But David did it. And on the heels of that comes this passage. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did so successfully. That did so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing dancing and joyful songs. And with tambourines and lutes, they danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. I don't know what the rhythm was. (laughs) I don't even have a tambourine. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They They have credited David with Tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Jealousy and envy. As we read that passage this morning, I have one question for you. I have one question to bring to you as we come to this passage, and that is this. As you look at this text from God's Word, why is Saul jealous of David and not David jealous of Saul? Why is Saul jealous of David and not David jealous of Saul? If I were to tell you that there were two men, One of them is a great king with immense wealth, has an army at his command, many women who love him, children, food, and everything this world can offer at the time. The other is a young man who's often overlooked and forgotten in his own family. His family itself is nothing to write home about. He's a keeper of livestock with no real money or assets or property to his name, no wife, no children. If I were to present these two men to you and say one is envious of the other, surely all of us would say that the poor shepherd is envious of the king. So why is Saul envious of David? A king envious of a shepherd? It would be like a billionaire being envious of a high school student with their first job. A maestro jealous of a child squeaking out their first attempt at hot cross buns on the recorder. A professional athlete with a multi-million dollar contract envious of the awkward tweener trying to make the JV baseball team. 
the accomplished artist with works hanging in museums around the world, jealous of the child with finger paints. Why is the king envious of the shepherd? Why not the shepherd envious of the king? If we are going to live a life contented in God and his blessings, we need to understand and know the answer to this question. And we'll get to that in a moment when we get to the root of jealousy and envy. But first, let's look at the results. Let me quickly give you four results of jealousy and envy in your life. And as I do this, I encourage you to do a little bit of self-evaluation. Put a checklist down if you're taking notes. Is this one me? Is this one not me? Do I see this in my life? Do I not see this in my life? Because as I said, when you're suffering from envy in your life, I think you are often the last person to know. But let's see if we can do a little self-diagnosis this morning. The first result of envy and jealousy is this. Envy will lead us to do things we would never otherwise even consider doing. Envy will lead us to do things. Envy will lead you to do things you would never otherwise consider doing. It certainly happened in the life of Saul. Saul, immediately following on this passage that we just read, it says Saul was afraid of David and he takes a spear while David is in his uh, kind of his his chamber there with Saul, and David is playing music to soothe Saul. Saul takes his spear, hurls it at David, and tries to murder him. He tries to do things that he would otherwise not do. Not only that, Saul brings his children into it. He has a son named Jonathan, and he has daughters, and he tries to bring them into it to get them to participate in helping him murder an innocent man. He uses his daughters in the game to try and lure David into a trap for him to be murdered. What parent under any normal circumstances would act that way? What parent under any normal circumstances would try and get their children to commit murder of an innocent person? But envy will lead us to do things we might not otherwise even consider doing. At one point in this passage... Paul sends David out to battle in an undermatched battle, hoping that he will be killed by the Philistines. Think about that. The leader of Israel is rooting for a Philistine victory. He's rooting for his enemies to triumph over his own army because of his envy of David. Envy will lead you to root for the wrong team. Envy will lead you to hope for the wrong things. Envy will cause you to do things that otherwise you wouldn't even consider doing. Envy in life will do the same thing. Take it from Carl Erickson, 73 years old in 2012 when he was sentenced to life in prison after admitting to the murder of a former high school classmate. 73 years old, he had been married, to 40, he'd been married for 44 years to his wife. But he had a secret that he hadn't told anybody, and it really didn't come out until after the trial. That one time, when he was a high school student, there was a, another student in his class named Norman Johnson. Norman Johnson played a prank on him in the gym locker room one day, pulled a jock strap over his head. Erickson didn't like it, and he hung on to it for 50 years 
years, and it ate him up. And at 73 years old, he found out where Norm Johnson lived. He went and knocked on his door, and he shot him dead at 73 years old. Why? Because envy will cause us to do things that we might not otherwise do. And it says also in that article uh, that uh, Erickson, for all his life, he would follow Norm Johnson, and he knew that Johnson, he says, Johnson continued to outshine Erickson in everything that they attempted, and so envy causes him to do things he might not otherwise do. After the trial, Erickson said, I just wish I could turn back the calendar. Wouldn't do it normally. Not something he would do if he had the choice again, but envy eats us up and causes us to do things we would not otherwise do. Murdering someone's obviously the extreme, but envy allowed it to fester in your life will cause you to do things you would not in other moments even consider doing. Trashing someone's reputation, planting words in the minds of other people that question another person's character are all fed by acts of envy. Envy will cause you to do things you might not otherwise do. Secondly is this, second result of envy. So in your life, are you finding yourselves doing things you wouldn't normally do? Envy might be at the root of it. Secondly, envy will keep us from being able to rejoice in another person's success. Envy will keep you from being able to rejoice in another person's success. In this passage, it says that David would go out into battle. He would defeat the army. Everyone was happy. Jonathan was happy. The troops were happy. Saul's men were happy. Saul is angry. Everyone is rejoicing. We just want a great victory. Saul is angry. The king who should be rejoicing can't because he's envious. Saul is the king. He's the commander of chief in the army. He should be excited when David wins a battle for him, but he's not because he's got envy in his heart. Envy will keep you from being able to rejoice in another person's success. So look around in your life. Do you have trouble rejoicing when other people are doing well? Do you have trouble being excited for them and enjoying their success? Romans chapter 12 instructs Christians to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know what envy does? Envy causes you and I to weep with those who rejoice and to rejoice when someone else is weeping. When you allow envy to dwell in your heart and hear someone else has joy in their life, you can't rejoice with them. Instead, you're secretly and inwardly upset because you do not have what they have. You can't go and enjoy your friend's new house because secretly you want it to be yours. You can't celebrate your coworker's promotion at dinner because you wanted that spot and think you should have gotten it. You brought a gift to the baby shower, but inside you are envious and upset because you don't have a child of your own yet. That's a tough one, isn't it, right? Because we come to that and you say, oh, Pastor Rick, you can't say that. It's good for someone to want a child, and it's hard when you don't have it. Absolutely it is. But envy isn't about not wanting good things. Envy isn't about desiring things that are evil all the time. Envy is about desiring something that is good and allowing it to become an ultimate thing in your life. 
Envy is about when you put something in your life of such importance that it overshadows everything else in your life and changes your character. Envy happens when we make good things ultimate things. If wanting a child is keeping me from rejoicing when others have a child, then I need to pray and ask God, And is there something that maybe has too big a hold on my life? And Lord, would you allow me to rejoice when others rejoice, even in the midst of my own pain? Not easy, but following Christ isn't always easy. There's an ancient tale about two people, one of whom was envious of the other. The envious person was once given an opportunity to ask a favor from the king. Anything. Anything. One provisio. His rival would get twice whatever he asks for. What would you ask for? You ask for a 5,000 square foot house, your rival gets a 10,000 square foot house. You ask for a million dollars, he gets two. You ask for a hundred million dollars, she gets 200 million. You ask to be CEO of a Fortune 500 company, she gets to be CEO of a Fortune 250 company. What would you ask for? Whatever you get, your rival gets double as the ancient parable goes. This put the envious person in a difficult position. After much consideration, he asked that one of his eyes be plucked out. Not only will envy envy cause you to weep when another person is rejoicing, but it will cause you to secretly, of course, because we'd never let anyone know this, rejoice when another person is weeping. A person doesn't get the job, the promotion, the house. And on the outside, we offer our condolences because that's the right thing to do. But if there is envy in your heart on the inside, there's a small part of you that's happy because they're no better than you. It's sickening to even think about, but this is what envy can do. Envy can cause a part of you to feel a bit smug when someone else suffers moral failings because you didn't do it. Hey, they might have all kinds of money and all that stuff, but at least I didn't cheat on my spouse. Envy is at the root of that. This can happen most often when we see people in the public spotlight mess up, and how do we react? Hey, I may not get paid a million dollars to play football, but at least I don't hit my wife. I may not be able to run a 4-2-40, but at least I don't beat my kids with a stick. I may not be able to hit a 100-mile-an-hour curveball, but at least I don't get behind the wheel drunk. You may not realize it, but all of these thoughts stem from a place of envy where we should be offering our pity and our compassion, and instead we offer our scorn Envy is at the root of it. Our world takes delight when a star is knocked down to earth, but we are not a people who is called to rejoice when others are weeping. We are called to weep with those who weep. But envy won't allow it. Thirdly, envy will cause you to hurt people you love. For Saul, this was his own children. Tried to get his son and his daughter to be complicit in the murder of an innocent man. Tried to, get his, tried to get David killed after he had married his daughter, in effect, causing his daughter to become a widow and lose the man that he loved, but he didn't care. 
Envy will cause you to hurt the people you love. When envious thoughts come in our actions, it's usually not the person we are envious of who will be affected at all. It's the people around us that we care about that suffer the most. You would not normally miss that important event in your child's life, but if you're going to outshine your coworker, you've got to get the deal done, take the trip, do the deal. Those comments about the way your spouse looks or dressed really hurt, but you had your eye on that person in the office or on TV or on that website, and so you were critical when you shouldn't have been. Expressing your disappointment about your kid's sporting ability is dumb when they're six years old, but look at all the other kids. Those words of hurt that you said to your parents are not really how you feel, but all your friends' parents let them stay out till 11 o'clock. Envy will cause us to hurt the people around us that we care about most. Envy will cause us to hurt people that are close to us that we care about most. Fourthly this, finally, envy will cause you to lose touch with reality. Envy will cause you to lose touch with reality. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, Jonathan goes to speak to his father. And he tries to talk some sense into him. 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 4, it says this, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all of Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason. Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul and David was with Saul as before. Everything's great, right? Saul finally understands and listens to reason. But once more, war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. Envy will cause you to lose touch with reality. When Jonathan's talking to him, he's saying, look, David's innocent and anything he's done has been good. And Saul says, you're right, Jonathan. But then David goes out, wins another victory, and envy creeps in again. It says that a spirit from, an evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul, and that can be a confusing thing, right? As best we can tell um, what's going on there is that God had already removed his spirit from Saul. Saul already made his decision, already chose to serve himself. God had removed his spirit. In a sense, what's going on is God basically ratified Saul's decision. If you want to serve yourself... You want to feed this envy of yours? That's your decision. And in a sense, the Lord ratified that, and Saul lets this envy creep into his life, and he tries to kill David again. But it's what happens in our lives. It'll cause us to lose touch with reality, it causes us to lose touch with what's really true. It's like the study that was done by Professor Vicki Medvek about Olympic medalists. Medvek studied Olympic medalists and discovered that bronze medalists were quantifiably happier than silver medalists. 
Here's why. Silver medalists tended to focus on how close they came to winning gold, so they weren't satisfied with silver. Bronze medalists tended to focus on how close they came to not winning a medal, so they were just happy to be on the medal stand. But it's the objective reality, because reality is the silver medalist did better. The silver medalist should be more excited, but that's not what happens because we lose touch with reality when envy starts to creep in. If you allow envy to creep in and take hold of your life, you lose touch with what is really true. Envy will cause you to see people who are friends as enemies and those who do not have your best interests at heart as your friends. Envies will cause you to take counsel of a fool and reject the counsel of a friend. A friend might say, I know it looks good, but is this a God-glorifying decision in your life? But envy can cause you to take the advice of one who doesn't care about God-glorifying decisions, but just says what your envy wants to hear. Envy, as I see it, only knows two directions. It's either going to take you in the direction of anger and malice or it's going to take you in the direction of loathing and depression. There's no good outcome. No one benefits from envy and jealousy. It's either going to take you in a place that anger creeps up in you and you know, to the point where this uh, Carl Erickson to the extreme murders. You may not, but in your heart you want harm to come to someone or it's going to take you in the other direction that you are so depressed and you are so caught up in your self-loathing that you cannot even enjoy anything in your life. And you don't know why, but envy has taken you down that road, causing us to lose touch with reality. So what is the root of this envy and this jealousy? Maybe you do that checklist. Are these things true in your life anywhere? Can you rejoice with those who rejoice? Can you weep with those who weep? Are there things you find yourself doing that you might not otherwise do? Maybe the root of envy is in your life. I think from this passage and Saul's experience, we can say that envy and the root of it is a preoccupation with self that's fueled by comparison and unhealthy desire. The root of envy is a preoccupation with self. When that passage that we read in 1 Samuel chapter 18 is there, it says Saul is concerned about himself. David has slain, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. You know what's most interesting about that? Is just before that, it says Saul had won a great victory. It was Saul's guy that won the victory. And if you're not looking through Saul's lens, but you are looking through a lens of Hebrew poetry, read the Psalms. That's how all Hebrew poetry goes. There's one thing given in the, in, in the first refrain, and in the second refrain, it is multiplied to emphasize how great the first refrain was. So Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands isn't necessarily an insult, but just a song singing about the fact that Saul's army and David as a part of it is so great and awesome. But when you're looking with a preoccupation of self, you're saying they're slighting me. They're slighting me. They're making fun of me. Because the root of envy is this idea of preoccupation with self 
that's fueled by comparison and unhealthy desire. Fueled by comparison, an example of that, Millard Fuller, founder of Habitat for Humanity, he was talking to a group of pastors one day, 200 pastors, and he threw out this question. He said, is it possible for a person to build a house so large that it's sinful in the eyes of God? Raise your hands if you think so. All 200 pastors raised their hands. Okay, said Millard. Then can you tell me at exactly what size the precise square footage a certain house becomes sinful to occupy? Silence from the pastors. You could have heard a pin drop. Finally, a small, quiet voice in the back of the room said, when it's bigger than mine. (laughs) And it's this idea of comparison that we're constantly, a preoccupation with self causes us to look at others and be envious and it causes these envy to creep in and it causes us to judge them and with some, in an unhealthy way. And then there's an unhealthy desire, unhealthy desire that creeps into our lives, true, and we don't always see it sometimes. Sam Polk was a trader on Wall Street, paid more than $5 million of bonuses in eight years alone. At 25 years old, he was at the peak of his career By the age of 30, he became uh, dissatisfied because despite the money, he was consumed by envy. He went on to work at a hedge fund, and his obsession with money only got worse. He said, now working elbow to elbow with billionaires, I was a giant fireball of greed. I think about how my colleagues could buy Micronesia if they wanted to or become the mayor in New York City. They didn't just have money. They had power. Polk describes getting angry over a $3.6 million bonus because it wasn't big enough. He realized that he had a problem with a wealth addiction. He says, in, this, is in, he says this article in the article, uh, I came to realize I had been using money as this thing that would quell all my fears, so I had this belief that maybe someday I would get enough money and I would no longer be scared. I would feel successful, and one of the things I learned on Wall Street was no matter how much money I made, the money was never going to do it. Preoccupation with self fueled by comparison and an unhealthy desire. So what's our response? Why is Saul jealous of David and David not jealous of Saul? What's our response? I'll tell you what your response is not. The response is not... Look at how much you have compared to others who don't have much. The response is not, in other words, just shut up and be thankful for what you have. Because that's sometimes what we're told, right? Don't you know that three billion people in the world live on less than $2 a day? Don't you know of all the poverty? Don't you know how bad it could be? So just be thankful for what you have. You should be grateful for what you have. Don't you know how other people live? Don't you know how other people struggle? Isn't that the answer we often give? Stop being envious. Just look at what you have and be grateful. That's not the answer. That's not the answer. Because this is appealing to a fleshly solution for a spiritual problem. 
If you compare yourself to other people in order to gain your feeling of competence, you're always going to end up empty. The answer is not looking at other people and feeling good about what you have in comparison to what they don't have. That's playing the same game, just looking at a different perspective. Neither is the answer for me to get up here and tell you, don't envy. You know why? Because you can't do it. Telling you don't envy just causes you to think more about the thing you're envious of. The answer, if you know that it's a problem you have with envy, needs to be dealt with by the Lord. The only response I know is to get more of your focus on God and who he is. The answer is to embrace the goodness and the good news that God offers you. So why is Saul jealous of David and David not jealous of Saul? Because Saul has his eyes on David, but David has his eyes on the Lord. Chapter 17, when David goes out to fight Goliath, doesn't talk about his own strength, doesn't talk about the strength of Israel or the greatness of King Saul. He says, the Lord will defeat you and bring a great victory today. Why is Saul jealous of David and David not jealous of Saul? Because Saul has his eyes on David and David has his eyes on the Lord. How do you kill envy in your life? How do you get rid of these results of envy in your life? Get your eyes on God. Lift up your eyes and look to the Lord. Get your eyes on what God has done for you. Titus chapter 3 says this, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and, say it with me, envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by his Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace... We might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. That is the answer to envy in your life. Get your eyes on your Savior Jesus who saved you. Get your eyes on God the Father. Get your eyes on the Holy Spirit who washes you and renews you in your life. Get your eyes on what Jesus has done for you because once I understand and once I grasp all that God has done for me, I don't care what your neighbor or your friend or your coworker has, it is going to pale in comparison to what God has done for you and who God is. If we will get our eyes off of the things around us and keep our eyes focused on the Lord and keep in perspective the temporariness of these things and keep in perspective what is truly important, it's the only thing that will kill the envy that exists in our life. There's no other answer that I know of. Saul got away from it. Got away from it. Lost focus of the Lord. Lost focus of it in his life. There's a time coming 
If we get into 2 Samuel, David gets away from it too. Loses his focus on the Lord, and he suffers the consequences as well. He became envious of something he did not have and could not have, and he took it anyway, and it caused pain in his life and in his family. But if you will keep your eyes on the Lord and keep your eyes focused on Him and what He's done for you, it's the one thing that can kill envy in our lives. So there may be some practical applications for you, surely, to spend time with the Lord, to be honest with God. Lord, I struggle with envy. And I'm the last to know, probably. And you already know about it. But Lord, I confess the sin of envy in my life. And Lord, I ask you to rip that out and heal me from it. Maybe spend a little less time on Facebook. If you can't handle that and that is causing envy to build in your life, and I'm not preaching against Facebook. I'm on it. But there are times, I'll be honest, I don't go on it. Because you know what? I said today, it's not going to be healthy for me. It's not going to be helpful. I don't need to look at it. I don't need to see it. I'm not going on it for the right reasons. It's not promoting a godly spirit within me. Like anything, it needs to be evaluated against your life with the Lord, helping or hurting you to get closer to God. Helping or hurting you to love people more. Helping or hurting you to rejoice with the blessings that God has given you. Everything in our life should be evaluated by those things. Helping or hurting us to become closer to God. Like David is a polarizing figure. Saul hates him. Everyone else loves him. Christ is also a polarizing figure. We come to Jesus in the New Testament. There are many who will follow him and love him and embrace him. There are others, and almost always out of envy, who will hate him and who will kill and crucify him. And at the root of that was an envy that there was there. Christ is a polarizing figure as well. And so this morning, one of the final questions I ask is, what or where are you with Jesus? Where are you with Jesus? Because he is a polarizing figure that also demands a decision. Just as Saul would say, you know, you either are with me or you love David, I think Christ would say the same thing. If you love Christ, you're with him. But if you allow that root of envy and that focus on self to be within you, it's going to cause you to be in a position of distance from Jesus. And so I pray this morning that you would draw close to him and that we would take our eyes off ourselves and put them on Jesus. Would you join me in prayer as we close? Father, God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Lord, I just come this morning and I recognize that in the world we live in and specifically in the place in the world that we live in, I mean, it can happen anywhere, but it just seems like right where we live, right when we live, 
that the sin of envy can be a huge tool of the enemy against your church and against men and women of God who desire otherwise to love you and to serve you and to know you. And yet the enemy would come in and cause us to compare and cause us to evaluate and cause us to be ungrateful, cause us to take our eyes off of you. And so what I pray this morning, and perhaps if you're here as well, you would do this in your own heart. If that sin of envy is in your life, I encourage you, if you have never done it, take this moment and confess it to God. Take this moment and confess before God that there is envy and in your heart. It perhaps it's led to malice, perhaps it's led to depression, but there is envy in your heart. But I confess that at times it's true in my heart. That that sin of envy is there. And Lord, it is not helpful to me, to you, to anyone around me. So Lord, for myself and for those that are in this room with me, I, that also would say that, I pray, God, that you would take our eyes off ourselves and put our eyes on you. Father, that you would help us to see what you have done and who you are, to be renewed by your Holy Spirit, to be awed by your work, to be in love with you, Father, and just to renew us and refresh us through the power of your Spirit in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be like David and to keep our eyes focused on you and have a heart after you. Let it be true of us as we leave this place today in Jesus' name.